Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. remembers Medusa. You know, hair of snakes, gaze that can turn to stone, beheaded by Perseus. That Medusa. She's inspired delight and dread and passion for a very long time. The 16th century poet Gaspari Mertola wrote of Caravaggio's painting of her, quote, flee, for if your eyes are petrified in amazement, she will turn you to stone. And Percy Shelley wrote, quote, And from its head, as from one body, grow as grass out of a watery rock, hairs which are vipers, and they curl and flow, and their long tangles in each other lock, and with unending involutions show their mailed radiance. She's had numerous iterations in pop culture, as Vice Magazine reported in 2018, quote, from a tight-suited villain in the Powerpuff Girls to a scathing metaphor for UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in UB40's hit song Madame Medusa, the myth of Medusa endures. For the past two decades, the character has continually resurfaced in cinema, mostly in an alluring form. Natalia Vodianova lent serious supermodel power to the 2010 remake of Clash of the Titans, while Uma Thurman cut a particularly seductive figure in Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief. Even the House of Versace found inspiration in the Gorgon, placing her at the heart of its iconic logo. End quote. And then there's feminist Medusa, since her story, in some tellings, involves assault at the hands of a male god and having her head cut off by a male protagonist. She also has a long history of being adopted as a symbol of female rage and resistance to a male-dominated world. In 1986, the magazine Woman of Power featured an article called Gorgons, a face for contemporary women's rage. Emily Irwin Culpepper wrote, quote, The Gorgon Medusa image has been rapidly adopted by large numbers of feminists who recognize her as one face of our own rage. In 1978, Women, a journal of liberation, put Medusa on the cover and explained that her image, quote, can be a map to guide us through our terrors, through the depths of our anger, into the sources of our power as women. And Elizabeth Johnston's November 2016 Atlantic essay called Medusa the original nasty woman, quote, Medusa has since haunted Western imagination, materializing whenever male authority feels threatened by female agency. As the Me Too movement was gaining steam, one artist, Judy Takas, produced a painting entitled Me Dusa Too. <laughs> Well, it turns out that Medusa is once again in the news thanks to a sculpture by an artist named Luciano Garbati. The sculpture takes Medusa's story and flips it, so to speak, on its head. All those famous pieces of Roman and Renaissance art show a victorious Perseus holding Medusa's freshly decapitated head. This one shows the opposite. It is Medusa who stands triumphant looking lithe and powerful as a reimagined female Captain Marvel, holding Perseus's head. It's like 
tables turned, revenge of the wronged. As the New York Times reports, quote, Medusa with the head of Perseus was reimagined as a symbol of triumph for victims of sexual assault when it was unveiled in Lower Manhattan, just across the street from the criminal courthouse on Center Street. A news release advertised the statue as an icon of justice, noting that the towering, nearly seven-foot-tall Medusa stood across from the building where men accused of sexual assault during the Me Too movement were prosecuted, including Harvey Weinstein, end quote. And many women online have voiced their support for this vision of female power and agency. It's a turning of the tide, a kill or be killed, one Facebook user wrote. Destabilizing the narrative as told through a patriarchal lens is really where the power of the work lies, said Beck Anderson, who helped with the project. This assumes, of course, that the story of Medusa and Perseus is a patriarchal story, because in it, Medusa loses to a man. But more on that in a minute. It seems others were not as thrilled about the sculpture. One African-American activist questioned why a movement founded by an African-American woman should be represented by a sculpture of a European myth which had been carved by a man. Others questioned Medusa's body type, superhero fit. Others found the implication of simply turning the tables, i.e. violence and vengeance in the other direction from women towards men troubling. Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, was one of these people. She chimed in strongly on social media saying this, quote, For those who haven't seen it, this statue of Medusa holding the severed head of Perseus has been placed across from the courthouse in Manhattan. Normally I let these things pass, but I just feel the need to speak on this. This statue of Medusa holding the head of Perseus has been dubbed by some, including apparently the sculptor, as a tribute to the Me Too movement, and it could not be more inaccurate. First, let me say as a survivor, if this feels cathartic to you, I'm not taking anything away from that. However, this movement is not about retribution or revenge, and it's certainly not about violence. It's about healing and action. So that's a lot to unpack about Medusa. And first off, I want to say unequivocally that I support justice for victims of sexual abuse and consequences for abusers. This isn't a critique of Me Too or of the core goals of the feminist movement. It's an examination on a deeper level of how we look at myth, how we can be sometimes culturally blind in our assumptions of what stories are about. It's very difficult to understand in our postmodern minds that are most comfortable in the realm of linear ideas and concepts the role that stories like the story of Medusa played in the ancient world, in which they functioned not as abstract lessons or sociopolitical commentary, but lived right at the heart of the ritual lives of people whose primary concern was direct interaction with forces of nature in heightened states of consciousness. And so all the characters in the stories are forces of nature, and none are better than the other, and each have a role to play, and that role is sacred, whether they are abductor or abductee, slayer or slain, whole or split wide open. Simply put, the original myth of Perseus and Medusa is not about masculine triumph and feminine submission. It's not about winners and losers. In our modern cultural context, we have a hard time envisioning and understanding that the one in the place of apparent submission, the one being slain, could actually be the center of the myth, the animate power at the heart of it, that their dying or being torn apart could be an expression of this power. Medusa 
is the living power of nature in the original myth. Her slaying births serpents in Libya and scintillant coral in the Mediterranean Sea. Her slaying most of all births the shining luminous Pegasus who flies from her split body. Her slaying frees her power and results in the turning of the great tentacled monster to stone, which is, of course, the central moment of the story, the finding of eternity itself. She is the entire journey of the dynamic, undulating world of energy, its unending involutions, as Shelley wrote. She is the goddess, and the goddess dies and is born again as she leads us to the eternal. That is her power. Slaying Medusa in the original story is not belittling Medusa. It is what frees her into her ultimate power. Trying to retroactively fit her into a narrative of winner-loser, hero-vanquished, triumph-defeat, that's what belittles her. So if the narrative for Luciano Garbati's sculpture is, we're going to reclaim Medusa, Medusa doesn't need reclaiming. She doesn't need postmodern interpreters to change her story to make her victorious. The original story is her victory. Today on the podcast, Medusa and Me Too, How Modern Narratives Miss the Heart of Myth, this time on The Emerald. This episode is going to contain explicit material. There's no getting around it. Greek myths are raw. The other day, a friend of mine was talking about how she had just gotten a book of Greek myths for her kids. I was like, well, that must be a really short book. I mean, what Greek myths are for kids? What stories are left if you take out the slaying, castration, abduction, sacrifice, dismemberment? What's interesting right off the bat, given the current Medusa discussion, is that there's certainly no distinction in the Greek myths between brutality towards men or women. Men are getting torn apart just as much as women. Women, in fact, are tearing apart men quite often. Horses are tearing apart men. Dogs are tearing apart men. Women are tearing apart animals, sometimes with their teeth. Gods are torn apart by both men and women. Medea dismembers her brother. Orpheus, the male demigod, is torn apart by the Thracian shamanesses. Acteon, a hapless young hunter, stumbles upon a spring where goddess Artemis is bathing among the water nymphs. The sight of divinity and its luminous nakedness is too much for him. He cries aloud. The goddess turns and splashes water on him, transforming him into a deer who springs off into the forest. When he returns to his campsite, still in deer form, his own hunting hounds fail to recognize him, and they tear him limb from limb. But of course, that's also Acteon's liberation. To be dismembered in the myths is to be liberated, because we have to be torn apart sometimes to gain a larger glimpse. And this glimpse of divinity, of eternity, of a world so much vaster than the one we have known, is accompanied by the tearing apart of all we ever knew. This sparagmos, it was called, this tearing apart, heads rolling, limbs flying, was everywhere in Greek mythology. 
Right at the heart of the Greek creation story, in fact, is a great dismemberment that occurs when the primal god Uranos is castrated by Kronos. So what's that all about? If Medusa is a story about modern gender politics, then surely this must be a story about actual castration? Of course not. It's a story invoking the dynamics of the forces of nature. The generative power of eternity comes into being through a dismembering, a splitting apart that is relative time. The Greek myths recognize and invoke the dynamism of nature, the forces of nature that are perpetually in a state of transformative change. This is why the characters in the Greek myths are forces. A muse is a movement. That's what the word means, movement. A nymph is a swelling. A titan is a straining. A naiad is a flow. Gorgon is guttural. That's the Indo-European root of the word. Poseidon is the force that shakes the whole world. These are forces present in the body, in the cosmos, in nature itself. Nature tears nature apart. Nature forcibly unites with nature. Nature splits nature open. Nature carries nature away. Nature returns nature to nature. The other day, during a meditation outside, I was watching a red-tailed hawk soaring through the sky. I was reminded of the ancient Egyptian reverence for raptors, their association with beams of light and the soul's journey. This hawk's underbelly was blazing white. What a divine vision, I thought. And then two ravens appeared, and they began chasing the hawk off, dive-bombing it, harassing it. They would not rest until that hawk was way out of sight. Why? Because that hawk, for them, was danger. A merciless killer that wouldn't think twice about plundering their nests and ripping their chicks apart. And to the chipmunk, the raven is a similar terror. Nature is divine. Divine is dangerous. Everything eats everything. And in being eaten, everything gives birth to everything else. Who wins? Who loses? Where is power? Where is agency? Orpheus is ripped apart by Mayanads. His head floats down the river, still spouting poetry. The Mayanads have done him the ultimate service, liberated his poetry for the entire world. In the Norse myths, the ripping apart of the god Kvasir brings the gift of poetic verse. Narrative itself is born out of a great sacrifice, a death, and perhaps successful narratives enact the same sacrifice. Within this dynamic vision of nature, the place of myth is to celebrate, enact, and reinforce cycles and relationships, to harness the power of the temporal world to find the eternal. Myths lived and breathed at the heart of the mystery schools. Stories were inseparable from the rites and rituals that accompanied them. Some were told only on rare occasions. Some told only when people were in heightened states of consciousness after fasting, dancing, singing for days. Within the eternal space-time of myth, all parts exist in holy relation. The raven is not less than the hawk. The story of Persephone, forcibly abducted by Hades, who then strikes a bargain that she can spend half the year above ground and half the year below, 
formed the basis of the Eleusinian Mystery School, which flourished for literally thousands of years, a school whose mysteries were so secret that to reveal even a hint of them was punishable by death. The Eleusinian rites involved days upon days of ecstatic ritual, music, dancing, recitation, reenactment of the central story, cathartic lament, joining, tearing apart, imbibing, embodying, being. It would be the most banal of all interpretations to say that Persephone is a story about the socio-political implications of abduction, or about abductees who develop fondness for their abductors. No, the story of the abduction of Persephone is an ecstatic cry to nature. It's about the great drama of the turning of the seasons, about the very real consequences of planting and harvest of spring and winter, a cycle that, if it is not enacted properly, brings real death and ruin, and if it is, life in all its glorious abundance. There's raw vitality in the turning of the seasons, and there is violence in the turning of the seasons. The possibility of death looms large as winter draws near, in spring, seeds are sown that are split open as new tendrils grow. The crop swells with summer ripening. Harvest is a taking, a reaping that requires giving back, usually in the form of sacrifice. This cycle is eternal and omnipresent. It is reflected in the cycles of day and night, of waxing and waning, of inhale and exhale. This cycle is everything. So where does Medusa fit within this great cycle? It's worth noting that Medusa is old. She's very, very old. She predates the telling of the story that we're most familiar with. Medusa, who makes her way into the old stories of the tribes of North Africa, who finds her way into the shamanic protection pouches of the ancient Greek animists. She finds her way then ultimately to the flag of Sicily and to Athena's shield as the great protector. Her name means protector. Early images of her look much like the images of protector deities from India that adorn the doors of houses and scare negative forces away. She is clearly revered, and this matters in terms of our modern misunderstanding. She's not a monster as we think of monsters in Western narratives of winners and losers and princesses and monsters. She's much more like Kali or Mahakala. In Ovid's telling, Medusa's transformation, and nearly all protagonists, male and female, in Ovid's Metamorphoses undergo forcible transformations that aren't particularly pleasant. Medusa's transformation in that telling of the story happens when Poseidon, the force that shakes the world, the lord of waters, is drawn to what? Her hair, her shakti, her power. And he forces himself on her in the temple of Athena. The forcing of the gods upon demigods is a shockwave between divine forces and earthly nature. It's not a social commentary on sexual assault. And it's often a way of establishing to which family of forces or particular character belongs. Medusa, with her coiling snakes, belongs to the family of Poseidon, of water, of the roiling sea, 
Hers is the thunderous power that shakes awake, the power of horses associated with Poseidon, the undulant dynamism of snakes, the guttural forces of the body, the ocean that lives beneath. Remember, the word Gorgon itself means guttural. So, a demigoddess is infused with the force that shakes the entire world, which is what? Kundalini. She spouts snakes from her skull that undulate in endless involutions. The tongues of the snakes quiver and vibrate, it's said. Each snake has wings that flutter and tremble. She is the dynamic force, who leads ultimately to the static, to eternity, because her penetrating gaze petrifies. It turns to stone. And so she is Shakti, the primal power that through her involutions leads ultimately to eternity. Eternity, which in her story is revealed in one specific instant. The instant I'm referring to is the spiritual moment itself, the freezing of the tentacled monster. Enter Perseus, the seeker. What's he seeking? Marriage, of course, divine union with Andromeda, which immediately marks him as the yogi, the practitioner, the seer. How does Perseus attain this place of union? First, he must travel to the far oceans and gain one eye held by three crones, uniting something that is three into something that is one. Sound familiar? It's every yogic text ever written. The seeker must unite three into one, past, present, and future into one singular vision, uniting three energy channels into center, one eye, three crones. And what does he receive from this yogic merging? He receives a knapsack that can hold Medusa's head, a vessel that can safely hold the serpent power of the Gorgon, the dynamic Kundalini. So if you're a student of the yogic mysteries, you should easily recognize this. Through the practice of yogic union, merging three energy channels into one, one receives a body, a vessel, that can safely hold kundalini. Perseus meets Medusa in a cave of perpetually overflowing water, and these divine slayings in so many myths involve outpourings of eternal water. He uses the shield of Athena of wisdom itself to stare at her reflection rather than directly at her, a wise practice tip for anyone familiar with the raw power encountered in trance consciousness. Still today, in the trance traditions of the world, you'll see the devotees in states of ecstasy shield their eyes with their hands. You'll see the old Umbanda mothers in Brazil cover their eyes and bow their heads. You'll see, as I've seen, a cloth placed over the head of trance mediums in India, shielded from the light, not looking directly at the light, bowing before it, not just out of humble respect, but out of self-preservation. What happens next? The moment of slaying, which is the rebirth. Perseus slays Medusa, he cuts her head clean off her shoulders. His slaying of her is the spiritual act of rupture, the riding of the upward fountain of Kundalini to the place beyond Kundalini, the pituitary catastrophe, as Joseph Sansanese calls it, the bursting open of consciousness into its true naked state. 
For from Medusa's neck, what emerges? A shining white luminous horse, a steed which rises upwards on wings, bright as burning phosphorus. Pegasus, the soaring power of awakened consciousness itself, which Perseus rides to find his bride Andromeda, chained to a rock in the middle of a torrential sea, encircled by an enormous tentacled monster. And here's the moment. Perseus lifts the covering of the knapsack and reveals Medusa's head, and the paralyzing power of Medusa's eyes freezes the tentacled monster. The freezing of the tentacled monster. Tentacles roving through a roiling sea of space-time, suddenly frozen. Eternity gained. The endless involutions suddenly become stone still. The finding of oneness. The seer harnesses the power of the temporal to find the eternal. The early yogis practiced the stoppage of breath which takes us beyond the Gorgon, or beyond guttural reality, beyond the monstrous heavings of the abdominothoracic cavity into infinite stillness. Cosmically, this is the movement that takes us beyond samsara, beyond the endless wheelings of life, death, and rebirth. Somatically, it is the conquest of the autonomic nervous system, the vagus nerve, as Joseph Sansonese points out, is the tentacled monster with its deep branchings into our oceanic innards. The yogi freezes it, stops the breath, and finds eternity, and the seeker is united with his bride in divine union. So maybe you can get a sense now what a narrow view it is to think that Medusa is losing out in this story because she is slain. Within these myths of the turning cycles of nature, the place of the one who is taken or slain is the key place. It is the place of power. That which is slain, whether it is Vertra in the Indian myths, or Medusa, or Uranos in the Greek, or Ulu in the Polynesian, the one who is slain is the one who gives birth is the creator. Vertra, the great serpent slain by Indra, gives birth to a flood of soma nectar. The dismembering of Uranos generates Aphrodite, beauty itself. Ulu, the Polynesian warrior, is cut into pieces by his wife, and his warm, buried heart gives birth to the breadfruit tree. Medusa's splitting open gives birth to shining Pegasus. Yet, in modern narratives, we assume that the one who is slain in the myths is somehow the loser. One could say there is a very narrow lineage of myths that assign winner-loser roles. To do so requires a world in which goodness always acts a certain very linear way. The Christian story of St. George and the dragon, which at its heart is the same story as Vertra and Uranos and Medusa, is about a slain dragon. Only this time, you're far enough into protagonist-antagonist god-devil cosmologies that, of course, one character must be good and one must be evil. 
In modern Christian tellings, the dragon is evil. But why then, when the dragon is slain, does its body erupt in a spring of life-giving water that heals all wounds? Because the story can't hide its animist roots. The slain one is the source of eternal life. The rupture, the slaying of the dragon, the moment of breakthrough, has no need to be defined by hero-villain narratives. It's far beyond this. In India, there lives still the vibrant story of the great goddess Durga and the slaying of the buffalo demon Mahishashura. The story is an integral part of the annual Navaratri festival, Nine Days of the Goddess. And because this myth is alive, it is being sung right now and told to little children right now and read in sacred scriptures and in comic books right now. And the goddess is alive and she's enacting this mythic cycle right now. So thousands of effigies depicting this great battle of Durga and the buffalo demon are sculpted all over India for this festival and decked in flowers and submersed in rivers. I noticed something when I was in India for this festival in 2017. It's customary in India for people to interact with effigies, statues, idols in a very tactile way, to touch them, to smear them with bright red powder called sindur, to touch certain parts of the deity's body and then bless oneself by touching one's own forehead. The image of the goddess bestows blessing, and the sindur, the powder, becomes a way of receiving blessing. What I noticed was this. Mahishashura, the fallen foe, the enemy, the antagonist, so to speak, was also covered in little blessing marks. People would rush to touch his forehead just as they touched the forehead of the mother goddess. The point on his neck where the goddess's lion's teeth sunk in, that was also a place of blessing. And the claw marks on his shoulder, and his joints, his elbows, his knees, his third eye, these were points of blessing too, because the entire cycle is a blessing. The slaying of Mahishashura is the cycle of nature the balance of nature, and every actor in the play, slayer and slain, hawk and raven, has a role to play that is sacred. Mahishashura is not less than anything else in the story. The place of being slain by the goddess is a place of power. It's what allows the crops to grow and the rain to fall, for seasons to change, and for great cycles to continue on breath by breath. Because the spiritual journey itself is to be slain. From a mythic perspective, we want to be slain. That's when the spring of eternal life pours forth. We want to end up as Mahishashura. We want to end up as one of the heads around Goddess Kali's neck. It means we've found our true alignment in relation to nature. And whether we want it or not, of course, that is where we will end up. When Durga and Kali, these powerful visions of Shakti, are claimed as a vision of modern Western feminine power, that the goddess is girl power incarnate, that she is kicking ass and taking names, and she's therefore emboldening us to do the same, that we can channel our inner Kali or whatever. Well, let's just say that's not what she traditionally means in her Indian context. In context, she is about our demise and our resurrection. She's about smashing our limited view to take us to something more eternal. And in that vision, true agency comes not from trying to be the one who's got the sword and is slicing heads off, but from allowing her, 
nature, the goddess, to slay the parts of us that need to be slain so that we can find deeper alignment within the greater cycles. Cycles larger than the temporal wheel of human justice, larger than the daily digital beheadings that take place on Twitter, larger certainly than vengeance for the sake of vengeance, larger than narrow narratives about who's right and who's wrong. So back to our modern Me Too narrative on Medusa, flipping the script with a sculpture showing her with Perseus's head, putting Medusa in the place of the supposed victor simply because it would be impossible for the modern Western mind to see beyond winner and loser narratives into deeper narratives, into hawk and raven narratives into animist narratives in which nature unfolds in a way in which individual actors are less important than the fulfillment of overall cycles, cycles of planting and harvest, of birth, death, regeneration, of rapture, of infinity. In the modern mind, Medusa is the villain, and Perseus is the hero who comes to slay the monster, and therefore he wins. So, hey, check out this plot twist. This time, Medusa is the winner. What did we do there? This time, Jesus is back, and he's doing the crucifying. Gandhi, too, he's back and he's pissed. What's interesting is when modern progressive criticisms of old stories perpetuate the same Puritan and patriarchal narrative they're supposedly criticizing. The overarching narrative, of course, it must be about the hero and the vanquished. It must be material agency over material powerlessness. It must follow the exact plot points as Puritan stories, clear distinction between winner and loser, justice served in the exact way we think it should, perpetrators punished in a particular way so that the story can satisfy our want for punitive justice. It must check all these boxes, but we'll just put someone else in the place of the victor. Never is it considered that agency in the original story actually exists in a very different place. The one who is slain ultimately has agency. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Strike me down now and I will become more powerful than you ever imagined, says Obi-Wan Kenobi to Darth Vader. And when my seven-year-old self saw him vanquished, I felt it. Because that is the holy place of the slain one who regenerates in myth. That is power, to be slain and give birth to something greater. The alternative narrative is one in which Obi-Wan just takes Darth Vader's place. And that's not mythic at all. Let's claim justice by installing ourselves in the place of the tyrant. How small of a narrative is that? In trying to box myth in to fit narrow modern narratives, we nullify a textured and varied vision, an animate vision, in which agency may not always be what it seems. A vision of a natural world that may ultimately not have our best interests in mind, that may not be taking sides with our small lives, that may be unfolding according to its own deep currents. In traditional myths, you're going to see very little punitive justice. Very rarely do animist myths follow conventional narratives of modern justice, because justice within nature operates very differently, and the tiny human being isn't the ultimate subject. The ultimate subject is the balance of nature itself. So flipping the script on a myth is like flipping the script on nature. Try it. It doesn't work. Which is another way of saying, what do we lose when we put the blade in Medusa's hand? 
and change her from the slain creatrix to a cartoon vision of girl power, we lose Medusa herself. Yeah, this incidentally is also why modern story narrative is so perpetually awful. It's no accident to me that Medusa in this new sculpture looks exactly like a superhero from the Marvel Comics universe. Sleek, toned, the exact same lofty hero figure who enacts narratives in which everything is exactly as it should be and everyone who is questionable is punished and nothing veers from approved narrative. It's a perfect encapsulation of everything we've come to expect from modern narrative. Let's make another superhero movie that's exactly the same as all the others, only this time the hero is a woman, and then that is touted as progress. When in reality, these narratives have moved away from true mythic power because they have moved away from the sacrificial cycles at the heart of nature. There are exceptions, of course. In 2018, a sci-fi horror film called Annihilation, which starred Natalie Portman, showed us a very different vision of nature, agency, and heroes. It showed death as generative, and biome as a tapestry in which the human life is a player towards an end that we may not even begin to understand. In it, the protagonists enter a vibrational biological anomaly called the Shimmer, a name evocative of the quivering tongues of Medusa's snakes, or of how Shakti, the animate force, is described in the Indian texts as a shimmer, as a tremble. In the course of their journey, many will die. Those deaths will not be right or wrong, but part of a larger turning wheel whose intentions remain ungraspable until possibly it is realized that the intention is the turning itself. Some will transform into plants. The sight of one man's demise births a fungal kaleidoscope on the wall, a new re-expression of life into life that can only be described as beautiful. He, you see, is Medusa in this story. And the fungus is Medusa too. And the soldiers watching him and the fungus in awed horror, they're Medusa too. Finally, the main character enters into a strange dance-like ritual with an animate being. It's unclear if it is a fight or a dance, or if it's mimicry or self-expression, or if it has some purpose beyond the dance itself if it is anything other than devouring and regenerating because that's what life does. Of course, people are going to interpret myth however they want, and that's one of the beautiful things about myth. There's nothing wrong with reinterpretations of Medusa because that too is one of her unending involutions. But myself, I'm always going to advocate for a vision of myth that has its feet pounding on the ash of the cave floor that remembers its heartbeat, that remembers that it lives right at the center of a great wheel of ecstatic ritual whose purpose is to transport the listener, the dancer, to the eternal, and that in this great enactment, all is holy, all is significant, none win or lose but the great cycle itself. At the center of myth is a living, dreaming thing. A myth is a being, 
that thing of unending involutions. It is the living power itself, which resists all labeling and confining. The myth is the animate power, one of whose names is Medusa. This episode contains references to several works of literature, art, articles, books. These include The Bacchae by Euripides, Ovid's Metamorphosis, Orpheus, The Song of Life by Anne Rowe, The Shiva Purana, a good modern retelling is Shiva by Ramesh Manon, The Orphic Hymns by Apostolos Athanasakis, Joseph Campbell's Mask of God series, The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony and The Celestial Hunter, both by Roberto Colasso, How a Medusa Sculpture from a Decade Ago Became Me Too Art. It's in the New York Times, October 13th, 2020, by Julia Jacobs. The Timeless Myth of Medusa, A Rape Victim Turned into a Monster, Vice Magazine, April 9th, 2018, by Christabel Hastings. The White Goddess by Robert Graves. Body of Myth by Joseph Sansonese. Star Wars, A New Hope, directed by George Lucas. He was great once for a short while. And, of course, Annihilation, the 2018 film starring Natalie Portman. Not for the weak of stomach, but highly recommended if you're into shimmers and fungal kaleidoscopes and nature winning above all. Also in this episode, you heard some of the beautiful sitar music of Galen Passan, a good friend of mine. And Galen's sitar music is going to be coming into future episodes as well. If you want to check out his work on Instagram, it's at Galen Passan. That's G-A-L-E-N-P-A-S-S-E-N. Thanks, Galen. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. (music) Thank you.